Hi, I'm Bob Fisher, and I'm your host today on This is Design Intelligence. Veronica Schreiby-Smith is the founding principal of Vera Iconica Architecture, as well as the CEO of Vera Iconica Wellness Kitchen and the B Corporation, Vera Iconica Developments. She's a global pioneer in wellness architecture and has been featured in publications such as the Wall Street Journal and Forbes. On this edition of This is Design Intelligence, she talks about what drew her to architecture, how her love of travel and immersion in different cultures has shaped her design philosophy, and why she believes good building performance can nourish the soul of its occupants. Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. Veronica Schreiby-Smith, founder of Vera Iconica, welcome to This is Design Intelligence. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Bob. So I'm curious about where it is that you grew up and whether you were influenced by the environment in which you grew up. I grew up in Laramie, Wyoming, and most definitely was influenced by that in, in many ways. You know, we are all a product of the environments we grow up in. One thing that's unique about Wyoming is it, it has the lowest population per square mile in the U.S., and in a, a, you know, a lot of places or a lot of countries. So there's a close connection to nature and the natural world. My elementary school playground was just a field for the first few years. You know, there wasn't a swing set or any real playground that was funded later. So we'd be let out for recess on the windswept prairies with tumbleweed going by. And sometimes we'd open our jacket and see how far we could lean before we'd fall over because it was, Larry was very windy. But most of the time we would be finding these filled stones and we'd make little little villages and play house with these stone walls and stone cities that we would make. So you could, you know, one could say that the playfulness and the game of architecture really, really started early. But, um, you know, then just a lot of ranching background, camping, fishing, appreciation for the local ecology, for symbiotic relationships between nature and which later has manifested into the, the belief that I have today is that humans are not separate from nature. We're an intrinsic part of nature. And, you know, I think Chief Seattle has this beautiful quote of, you know, man did not weave the web of life. We are merely a strand in it. What we do to the web, we do to ourselves. And so as we're building and as architects, there's this idea about, you know, sustainability and regeneration, which are absolutely spot on. The layer that of cognition that needs to be added to that is how do you do that very specific to your site location, not just the climate, but the, the ecology? And how do we become a part of nature ourselves not just something that's destroying it and then maybe having high energy performance and being done. You know, what's the bigger story and tied to the local culture and ecology? So those are all things that that have influenced that. We know that you've been working with one of our colleagues back at Design Intelligence on an interview that will appear in our third quarter, Design Intelligence Quarterly. And in that article, you talk a lot about how you founded the firm you talk a lot about what your uh, original vision was. For the sake of our listeners who haven't yet read that article, tell us a little bit about your backstory 
and how you wound up being the founder of Vera Iconica. So I always knew that I would be an architect. I think when I was probably between eight and 10, my dad asked me what I wanted to do when I got older. And I said, I either want to be a travel agent or an architect. And he responded right away, oh, well, travel agents don't really make any money. <laughs> so uh, little did we know that they would you know, be all but obsolete, relatively speaking. And so kind of from that moment on, I was really focused on architecture. And when I was in uh, university, I spent a year in Germany and I arranged my class schedule so that I could basically travel for two and a half weeks and miss very little school, you know, just one week of school essentially. And I would, I completed these huge loops throughout Europe studying historical and contemporary architecture and the context that created those design aesthetics or what was happening in the culture at the time. And that really led me to this idea that good design is not just about how beautiful something is. Things need to be beautiful and they need to have character and respond to us as humans. It's how do they emotionally excite you? How can they relax you? How can they increase your cognitive performance? This idea came to me that our requirements for our building should be much more than shelter. You know, a caveman was looking for shelter. Today's generation and tomorrow's generation of people really need our buildings to respond to a larger depth of what makes us human and what makes us high performing in order to truly serve us. And that's where eventually this idea of wellness architecture came into play. And, you know, wellness is a little bit of a buzzword now, so you can use that word or not use that word. But the idea is, how do we create environments that really enhance somebody's experience and optimize their ability to live the lifestyle of their dreams? So it seems like the way that you pursued your education sort of combined your original interest in being a travel agent <laughs> with being an architect. And when you went to university and you spent the time in Germany and you traveled around, was that part of the program or was that something that was wholly self-directed? Wholly self-directed. I, I finished my undergraduate degree in three years, and it was traditional that during the fourth year, students took a semester and went and traveled with other students from, from the studio. And I thought that there would be an opportunity for me to actually go have an immersive experience in another culture with the entire year that I had kind of saved, so to speak. So I, I also got a degree in German, but I, I went and lived in Germany and, you know, was immersed in that school. I went to the, the university there studying German. And then I took independent studies towards my master's degree of architecture. So luckily, I had wonderful professors who, you know, I went to the uh, one of my architecture professors and I said, hey, I want to do this. What do you think? And he said, well, I have no idea how you're going to do that. That doesn't exist. But if you can figure it out, I'll underwrite it. And then I went to the, the German teacher and I said, hey, you know, there's a lot of exchange programs. How do I keep paying tuition here? and get credit and do this. And he said, well, nobody's ever done it quite like that, but if you can figure it out, I'll sign off on you. So uh, luckily I had wonderful support to 
uh, pursue something unique. And it was really just a fantastic year. And it was probably one of the easiest academic years that I had, but also one of the biggest years for growth and learning. So it was it was just a lot of fun. So you were carving your own path from an early age. <laughs> yes. I think if you asked my parents, they would say it started much earlier than that. Right. But yes, that's an example. Right. So how did you wind up in Peru? So when I came back to complete my master's in architecture, my thesis at the time was called Design by Instinct. And I was looking for an architectural precedent where they used an intuitive design process, which at the time I had a very hard time articulating what the heck that even meant. But uh, they used an intuitive design process to create buildings that were, were kind of unpredictable. They were so delightful because they weren't just the expected, and yet they were so incredibly appropriate of exactly where they were from and of the culture and of the place. And Luis Longhi came to the university and gave a lecture that was called Living by Instinct. So I said, oh man, I, I gotta go to this one. And really it was the epitome of what I had been looking for. So I used him for the not only the precedent in my thesis, but then I also did my early internship days with him in Lima. So you eventually wound up or landed on this whole idea of wellness, like wellness is central to how you built your practice. Tell us a little bit more about the evolution of that wellness philosophy and how you went about founding a practice based in that. So after Peru, I went and lived and worked in South Korea for, for some time. And then I moved back to Wyoming and got licensed. In 2010, I started my own business with simply the idea that we could do better. And I had a hard time articulating what better meant, but it revolved around these ideas that being somebody that's very sensitive to space, I would go into so many spaces and maybe they photographed well or they were trendy and so they were desirable, but they were lacking in one of these performance metrics. So, you know, my definition of performance goes beyond just basic shelter, right? My, my definition of function goes beyond utilitarian tasks and jobs. So an explanation of that is things absolutely need to function smart and crisp. You know, if you're in the kitchen or if you're moving through your house, it should be efficient. There should be good storage. There should be a place for everything. It should be beautiful, it also needs to respond to emotional and intellectual needs. And science has proven that the environments we're in have a big influence on our emotions. It can even influence the relationships that we have. It influences our health through things like hormones, our circadian rhythm, our sleep. There are ways to design sleep sanctuaries to boost your immunity, to help your cognitive performance. There's environmental psychology that has shown that the environment you're in does actually impact your ability to get into your flow state. So I would pick up on these things and I would have a sense that a space was not performing how I wanted it, it to perform. And I would go do, the, do research in areas that are not directly related to architecture like neuroscience or you know, different medical studies or look at white papers coming out from School of Public Health 
and start to understand how environments impact humans. And they explained things that I was already naturally feeling. And it's not just me. We all feel these things all the time, but it was um, has not been common in architecture to really talk about these things or to instruct people as architects how important architecture is to helping people's health and well-being. So over the course of about five years, I was playing with these ideas. I was doing a lot of my own research. I was also volunteering. And one of the organizations I started to volunteer for was the Global Wellness Summit and the Global Wellness Institute. And I founded an initiative for them called the Wellness Architecture Initiative because I was sitting with the, the founders, Susie Ellis and um, Nancy Davis, and I was describing to them, you know, my beliefs of the responsibility that architecture has to help people thrive. And, you know, Nancy looked at me and she said, well, that sounds a lot like wellness architecture. So we said, okay, well, let's start the Wellness Architecture Initiative. And that was back in 2014. Uh, we weren't the only ones with those ideas at the time. There were other, you know, the International Well Building Institute was popping. There was a lot of other kind of, it, it seemed to be in the zeitgeist, so to speak. There were other organizations popping up with this idea that buildings could perform better and really shepherd health and well-being of, of, of us, of the people that live in them and work in them every day. So what you were creating kind of through iteration, starting from an intuitive draw toward this, toward a better architecture, was like a different context for living. Exactly. Tell us a little bit about the work of the firm, what exactly you do, and in what ways is it a traditional practice? In what ways is it a non-traditional practice? So a lot of our projects, we tend to attract clients that have the same value system. They, they want a beautiful home. They want something smart. They want something that's on time and on budget. So in that way, it's clients with normal and reasonable expectations coming for a set of drawings that can be executed effectively. Uh, and and hopefully efficiently as well. But what makes it unique is those clients do share our definition of performance, that it's not just a shelter and something that's functional, that basically the, the art and humanities behind it, the things that move somebody, create an experience that's memorable and nourish people's soul, that that is really what they want. And so making sure that we have that that extra piece and that it's smart and that it's shepherding their health and well-being that's the part that that we really look after and we have proprietary systems and uh, processes to make sure that we're really responding to what's important to them so how many people have you got working with you right now and what kind of roles are they playing we have 15 people that work for us and we have project managers that have come from some very large firms that are used to running massive projects. And one of the the beauties of coming from large scale and then coming down, uh, you know, even some of the hospitality projects that we work with are more boutique in size or nature. Um, sometimes we do consulting on large scale projects uh, where we don't actually have the, the staff or manpower to do it. So we, ha we have 15 people. And we have project managers that can really focus on how to simplify complexity 
and manage it efficiently and effectively and st- streamline our, our staff. We have specialists in uh, healthy materials and interiors that have you know different certificates and degrees with those specialties. So we have both architects and interior designers that work for us. And we also have, we not only focus on some of the more standard degrees and accreditations that people have within the industry, we also look at where people's passion and heart is and where their life experience lies. For example, we have people that have a background in farming and how do you store and keep and prepare food to maximize the nutritional content. And so, you know, one of my partners and designers, Blair Costello, is one of the the lead designers and concept, you know, has helped with develop the concept for Very Iconica Wellness Kitchen and is very in tune in her everyday life of what makes sense because she's a foodie, she's a wonderful chef, her husband's a farmer. So it it's really about, in a way, making sure that the lifestyle that we're living, we can glean information from that so that we're suggesting things that actually work for our clients and not things that just sound good on paper, but they don't actually work. So the people that have actually, you know, lived the hotels, lived the spas, lived in the kitchen, mm-hmm. have had trouble sleeping, have had health issues, mm-hmm. you know, what is our team's story and how do we use that to really make sure that we're being sensitive, thoughtful, and practical in the solutions that we suggest for our clients? Where do you see the firm going in the next several years? Where the firm is now is we do use, and I, I can see us using for, for the foreseeable future, the term wellness architecture to describe what it is that we do. However, wellness is such a buzzword now in every industry, not just architecture. I think that where the vision of the firm is right now is we are really here as a solution for our clients on how to help them create an optimal life. And so if they have aspirations for a certain lifestyle, maybe they want to have different rituals or routines that they've been trying to meditate and they just can't find it or they're scattered or they have chaos in their life and they want something that is more peaceful. We, we can't change their life. They need to change their life. But what we can do is give them a tool and a supportive environment that makes it easier to do those things that they're trying to do and make it flow and make it make the right choice, the right choice by their definition, the easy choice. So when you have a strong mission, right? You want to bring thriving and health and wellness to your clients. How does having that kind of mission balance with the practicalities of running a business? Like, do they get in each other's way? Do they actually support each other? What does that dynamic look like? Yeah, I think probably in earlier years, we were idealistic in always trying to push the boundaries towards maybe our definition of wellness. And where we're at today is what is our client's definition of wellness and how do they want to live? And what tools do we have in our tool belt to support them? We don't have to throw everything but the kitchen sink at them, right? We can just say, you know, if somebody is having trouble with sleep or if another person has a history of respiratory illness, there are certain programs 
and specifications that we can build into the home, you know, so that they sleep better. We can design a sleep sanctuary. We can look at electromagnetic fields. We can look at sound. We can look at daylighting. We can look at and maybe make recommendations beyond the architecture of, you know, things that we know and that science knows about sleep and how to optimize sleep and go through their rhythms and their rituals of how they wake up in the morning and how they go to bed so that we can truly optimize their circadian rhythm. Or in the case of the, you know, respiratory illness, sometimes we've designed in um, halo therapy, which is, would be a salt room, for example. We can increase oxygen in the bedroom so that they're getting more nutrients and it's a little bit easier to breathe. And then, of course, we can make sure that the filtration of the, the systems as well as the materials that are going into the building are very healthy and supportive, and it's really optimizing the, the indoor air quality of the building. So we really work with our clients in the beginning to understand what they value, understand what they're trying to achieve, and then and understand what they want to spend money on, right? That's the value conversation. So where would you like, you know, maybe maybe to save or to do something that is more an industry standard? And where is something that you want a higher performance? So those are the types of questions that we that we have. And then we really focus and hone in on, on that when we're designing the building. It sounds like in order to be successful, you need to have a really close relationship with your clients, or I should say you need to collaborate very closely with your clients. What does that process look like? So in the beginning, we typically do journal entries with our clients. So we prompt them to either answer verbally or if they prefer to write down in advance how they want to live. Because we believe that even if you've gone through the process of building a home before, this, this is specifically for the residential clients. If you have gone through the process of building a home before, there is still the opportunity as you go through it again to add a level of consciousness. And that level of consciousness not only is going to result in a architecture and space that is uniquely beneficial to you. N not to say that it, you know, it's not marketable or that it's easy to resell. You know, it, it will be all of those things, but that it really helps kind of some of the goals that you have. And we go through these journal entries and questionnaires uh, so that we understand what the client's goals are. And then as we're going throughout the process, we we come back and we show them these are some things that you wouldn't find in your typical everyday home that are are going to achieve this goal or this outcome for you. And this is how it works or this is the science behind it. This is the cost associated with it or maybe there is no cost associated with it. It's just good design, you know, or specific design for that, that certain circumstance. And then throughout the process, we just, we keep going going through so that they understand what it is they're getting for and if there are any additional, you know, impacts the project. A lot of times when you're already doing a high-end residential project, the the additional costs are really minor. You know, if you're already doing high-end materials, there's no real additional cost. And then for our uh, commercial clients, we do a lot of hospitality and spa. We are doing the same thing, but we're really focusing on the guest experience. So what unique experience is going to be imprinted on the guest mind that are going to make them want to return 
and recommend the place to their friends and family. So we, you know, we go through and look at the different demographics of who's coming, how they're going to respond, how their experience of the places, what the programming and offerings are going to be, and then how do we design that into a a wellness property that helps differentiate them from their competition. And then we do the same thing, we look at the budget. So how can they monetize that? You know, it, it's not just something that costs extra, right? There needs to be an uh, attractive ROI. So we we go through and we work with their teams to look at, okay, what is the additional cost of adding filtered water in the bedrooms? How can you market that? And what impact is reasonable to expect? So does that make sense? And so we'll go through a whole list. Some things will cross off the list because maybe they don't make sense or they can be faced at a later date. And some things um, get integrated right away. So it sounds like in that process, when you're doing commercial work, especially you're balancing out practical business concerns with all of the aspirational and wellness-driven concerns that are part of all of your architecture. So I have a question about you and your designers and how you balance not only those practical concerns, but the science behind what you do and the intuitive aspect that's so important to your philosophy. Everybody on our team is really an expert in wellness. And we've done a great job over the last 13 years of building that team and then offering continuing education to continually expand everybody's expertise. But for example, we have what we call Wellness Wednesdays. And we basically study every every Wednesday. It, it might be something that individuals are researching on and then presenting to the rest of the team so that we understand what a material is, where, you know, where did sick building syndrome come from and does it still exist today? Actually, surprisingly, there are a lot of sick buildings. Um and people that are being diagnosed with sick building syndrome today. So we kind of understand some missteps that have happened in the last 100 years. And then we also start to learn about what the alternatives are and what we can do about it or how we can help and support people. And we, you know, we have different books and curriculum that we're working on in our office internally as well, where everybody's responsible for readings and then we have conversations around that. And then what's I think really fun is we then sit down and we look through our projects. We ask everybody, you know, if we read something this week and you could apply it to your project, what would that look like? So we're always tying the research that we do with how we would implement it in a real world way on budget, on time. How does this make sense? And then if there's things that, you know, really are not market ready yet, we note them and every year we kind of follow up and say, does this thing, does hempcrete make sense this year? Uh, no, not this year, but let's check back in 2024. Right. Makes sense. And you, so what you're doing is collectively taking a look at what you know, or collectively building a body of knowledge, and then also working collectively to figure out how to apply that body of knowledge. Exactly. And once that's so integrated in everybody, that that's the other part of your question is, then you don't really have to think about it when you design. You can have this intuitive design process or just think about the experience and these moves and what's going to be the most beautiful thing for your client. And all of these practical or technical or, you know, mechanical things end up working with that design because, you know, they were 
marinating in the background as you were working on the the big move, the experience of the place. In recent years, you've actually identified some areas for your business to grow into to support your fundamental mission that are not strictly architecture and design. Isn't that right? That's right. We have a couple related uh, sister companies that are, I would say, still in their infancy. One is Very Iconical Wellness Kitchen, and it is a kitchen design company. We're looking at the possibility of manufacturing a wellness kitchen so that the idea of the wellness kitchen is a kitchen that is really set up with unique systems and workflow to make eating a vegetable-rich, nutrient-rich diet easier. So that's one project, easier, more joyful, and more mindful. So a Fair Iconica Wellness Kitchen the second is Vera Iconica Developments. So we've been working on raising capital and identifying projects that really have an opportunity to be a different product in uh, communities where people are like-minded. You know, they don't just want to go to a destination resort, have a great experience, and then come back. You know, maybe some people want a, a gated community. Maybe some people don't want it to be a gated community. They just actually want their their town, their city center to be operating in this way that help people thrive. So how can we develop areas of the, the city or the neighborhood so that the lifestyle and the amenities are there to really support them? And how do we do it in a sustainable way, in a regenerative way at a larger scale than just one, one home at a time? So that, that's our mission in the development company. So most of your practice has been in the United States so far, but I understand that you're starting to expand. So tell us a little bit about that part of the future for Vera Iconica. Yeah, I think this probably goes back to the, the traveler in me. A couple years ago, we started getting more interest internationally from Italy to Mexico to Thailand. And as our the number of international projects that we work on is is growing, we are also starting to look at what's happening in the rest of the world. So as a world-class high-end design firm, we have done extensive travel looking at design centers in Europe. And uh, we're continuing to, to do that today. I'm actually in Europe as we speak right now, looking at, you know, again, just What's co- you know what's coming? How do we stay on the forefront? And at the same time, that's not to follow any trends. It's not to be on top of from a, a trendy standpoint, but really on what are the materials that that make the most sense? What are the lights that are really going to be comfortable or, or ways of lighting? Because you know, in the United States, can lighting is in residential can lighting is everywhere. But can lighting has a lot of glare and is not necessarily the best lighting for our eyes as they were designed. Daylight is is really the best. So what are different lighting systems, lighting approaches that other places are, are doing that we could start to implement and bring to our clients? Well, Veronica, we really appreciate you being with us today and talking about how you were able to take 
a vision and a mission uh, to help people live healthier lives and turn that into a thriving design practice. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bob. It's been fun. Thank you for joining us for this edition of This is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.